Hello and welcome to Bird Curious, a podcast in which we talk about birds. Each episode, we talk about a particular species, what makes it special and how to spot one. And we also explore some of the science and history of birds and birders from the UK and around the world, as well as sharing some surprising bird trivia. We're two sisters in socially distanced London, so for the time being we're focusing on birds that it's still relatively possible to see during the coronavirus crisis, even if you live in a city. This week we'll be talking about a bird that charms some bird fans and infuriates others, the UK's only naturalised parrot, the ring-necked parakeet. Hi, I'm Penny Sarchet. And I'm Joe Sarchet. It really feels like we're into the summer now, but I've still actually been enjoying spotting some juvenile birds here and there. I saw a young great spotted woodpecker the other day nagging its parents for food and trying to peck a tree. As we discussed earlier in the series, they have these really cute red heads and a sort of cheeky, punky look. Have you seen anything fun recently, Pen? Oh, nothing, nothing that good. I'm, I'm jealous. Um, but I have to say, I've been enjoying the last of the swifts, actually. Mm. Uh, they seem in my area to have ventured a bit further, so I can see them from my own window now, sometimes circling in the sky. Um, oh. It's so poignant when you think that they're, they're just having their last meals, really, before they start heading back to Africa. Yeah. I have to say, since our Goldfinch and Wren episodes, I've been listening out for and noticing their songs quite a lot while out walking. But often when kind of trying to hear birdsong and identify it, maybe even record it, I do find they get drowned out by raucous parakeets. Hmm. I, I saw a huge noisy flock of parakeets circling the other day and counted about 30 of them. Wow. Yeah, it's mad. I think, love them or hate them, they're very hard to ignore, ringneck parakeets, and they're our bird of the show. So the ring-necked parakeet, also called the rose-ringed parakeet, is not a hard bird to spot. It's large, about 40 centimetres long, it's bright green, with a curved red beak and a long tail. The males have black and pink neck rings. They're often found in large flocks and can be pretty noisy. Mm. (laughs) They're a common sight in London parks now, and their numbers are increasing. But there are actually only around 12,000 pairs of them in the UK, which isn't really that much when you consider that there are you know 11 million pairs of wrens for example but the thing is is the parakeet population is very much concentrated in the southeast of England so they do end up feeling pretty common if you live in London or in certain other areas such as Kent you're much less likely to have encountered them if you live say up north or in Scotland yeah, for those living in the southeast, you're probably already familiar with where you're most likely to see one. These parakeets are particularly common in suburban parks and large gardens, plus orchards too. They're very comfortable tucking in at garden bird tables and feeders, particularly in winter when food becomes a bit more scarce elsewhere. But flocks of parakeets flying over London parks have become a pretty common sight, particularly around dusk in my experience. Mm. Roosts of parakeets can apparently number in the hundreds, so this really isn't a bird that minds being in large groups. So I guess that group of 30 I saw was not even that big by parakeet standards. Yeah, a little breakaway group. (laughs) They're pretty hardy birds, they can tackle UK winters, um, but they're also very successful breeders. 
They start breeding really early in the year, in January, meaning they have the choice of tree holes and nest boxes to choose from. And that's led to concern that they may be stealing nest sites from native birds like starlings, woodpeckers and owls. Mm. But the breeding season is actually quite long. Some birds may not lay their eggs um, until as late as June. And the pairs tend to have two to four young per brood and they both provide care to their chicks. They work together to raise them. So that contributes to the high success rate that these birds have with breeding. So you can see how that could lead to what feels like a boom in numbers in some areas, especially mm. because they roost in such large numbers and they are so loud. <laughs> yeah, they can be pretty noisy. Um, if they're in your area, you probably know all too well what they sound like. But in case they're not, I recorded a short clip the other day. Yep, they're pretty loud. Yeah, and I've read they can mimic human speech and be taught to repeat words and phrases. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. I feel that could be a fun project to try out with some of the local ones in the park. (laughs) You'd have to try to get the same parrot each time. (laughs) Yeah, just try try and yell the same thing at everyone you see and hope it's sometimes the same one or something. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Might be a bit of a fool's errand, that one. A wild parakeet chase. (laughs) Penny, you mentioned earlier that they're the UK's only naturalised parrot. What does it mean when we call a bird naturalised? Well, we talk about a non-native species being naturalised when it has built up a self-sustaining population in a country. For example, some species regularly escape from gardens or as pets, but they don't become breeding populations. Mm. That isn't the case with the parakeet. It's fully settled in and it's here to stay. Right. I suppose the elephant in the room, or the bright green squawking (laughs) elephant in the room, is how on earth did the ring-necked parakeet become naturalised here? I suppose, first of all, we should get to grips with where they come from originally. Yep, so the ring-necked parakeet has a wide native range stretching from West Africa across lowland India south of the Himalayas. But then there is the question of how it got here. Yeah, there are quite a few urban legends floating around, aren't there? Mm. There's the one that they escaped during the filming of The African Queen in the 50s or that Jimi Hendrix um, released a pair in Carnaby Street in the 60s. Have you heard any others? Yeah, those are the, the two big ones, but there there are quite a few others, um, including the legend of a mass escape from an animal pound at Heathrow Airport and uh, and the suggestion that an aviary got damaged during um, the, the big storm that uh, we had in 1987. <laughs> right. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because even though sightings of parakeets, they actually date back to the 1860s in the UK, People have been quite keen to believe in these origin stories, even though they relate to the 50s, the 60s, and even the 80s in the case of that great storm one. Mm. I think these quirky origin stories for non-native species can really capture people's imagination, can't they? Yeah. It's a bit like what we discussed earlier in the series about how there's this widespread idea in the US that starlings were introduced because they were mentioned in Shakespeare, despite there not being much in the way of evidence for that being why they were introduced. I think sometimes the more ludicrous or random an origin story for a non-native species is, the more we want to believe it. Yeah, and also especially when a species is so exotic and flamboyant looking, the parakeets just look so incongruous with the British fauna. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess seeing them always raises questions, doesn't it? And people want answers. (laughs) There was an interesting study published in December 2019. A research team helped to pretty much debunk the quirky origin myths about how the parakeet was introduced to the UK, including the Hendrix and the African Queen ones. They searched archive news articles and used a statistical technique called geographic profiling, which is usually used for crime solving, to analyse spatial patterns of parakeet sightings. 
They actually they found no evidence to support the popular urban legends. Um, and as is often the case with these sorts of things, the reality does seem to be much more prosaic, really. Parakeets were popular as pets, and it seems that there were lots of small-scale releases of them into the wild, both accidental releases, such as es- escapes, and also intentional releases. So um, why might they have been intentionally released? Don't tell me they're mentioned in Shakespeare or something. <laughs> um I don't think they were specifically, although parrots do get a fair few mentions in Shakespeare. Um, No, it's quite interesting, actually. Apparently in 1929 to 1931, and then in 1952, there was dramatic news coverage of parrot fever outbreaks. Parrot fever, or psittacosis, is a disease that can spread from parrots to humans. So you can see how dramatic news coverage about parrot fever outbreaks might have caused people who already owned pet parrots to panic and release them into the wild. Oh dear. Yeah, and it's really not that surprising, I suppose, that there were a fair few escaped parakeets when you consider how popular pet birds were in the 20th century. Apparently by 1961, birds had become more popular pets than cats and dogs in Britain, and there were about 11 million birds being kept in captivity. I never would have guessed that. It's it's really sad to think of all of those birds in cages. Yeah, but then I suppose that that did include a range of species, so it still leaves us with the question, I suppose, of, you know, why parakeets, why has no other parrot species become naturalised here? Presumably this is down to certain characteristics of the ring-necked parakeet. Um, do you have any ideas? Um, my gut feeling is that these parrots are particularly hardy Mm. most parrots have intelligence and cooperation and and sociability going for them that's why i'm generally a huge fan of parrots Mm. Um, but i think to mark the ring-necked parakeets out from other species it's got to be something to do with coping with temperate climates they're doing pretty well in some other northern european countries too yeah they they do seem to be very adaptable like you say it's not just here that they've managed to flourish ring-necked parakeets have established non-native populations in around 30 or so other countries i think i remember seeing some in a park in amsterdam about 20 years ago before i'd seen any in london i think yeah i remember that i think i think at that point we'd perhaps seen them once like a, a flock at kew gardens but oh. nowhere else yet they still yeah. really felt like a real novelty yeah exactly and i suppose this brings us to the question of whether we love them or loathe them It's a really tough one. I'm charmed by them, definitely. And I don't think we should automatically hate species just because they're not native. Mm. Um, But I would have to say, if I live somewhere where there were huge numbers of them being very noisy in their roosts, I'd really um, struggle with that, to be honest. They do drown out all all native birdsong and and it can get very loud at dawn and dusk. Yeah, I suppose that's something in the lockdown people really appreciated actually being able to hear birdsong a bit more clearly for. Mm. Mm. so maybe people aren't ready for parakeets to kind of come along and drown drown that all out (laughs) but on the other hand they are clearly quite impressive characters who survive by hook or by crook in these tricky urban environments and I always quite admire that in wildlife like you know urban foxes and crows that raid rubbish bins (laughs) we don't really leave much space for nature in modern cities so I do admire when they manage to kind of force their way into our lives yeah I take your point there you've got to admire their success really yeah I suppose ultimately it all hinges on whether they pose a threat to other wildlife yes and we don't actually know yet how much of a threat they are to native species Mm. including those birds they compete for nest holes with whenever an animal becomes prominent there's always someone who will suggest culling it Uh, but the rspb isn't in favor of a cull yet their current policy is that parakeets need to be monitored so that we can know for sure what impact they may be having on other birds Mm. I suppose in any case, they're they're colourful characters and for the time being, they certainly seem like they're here to stay. 
it's time for our Birder Hall of Fame, a celebration of notable birdwatchers worldwide, both in history and living today. Joe, who are you suggesting we induct this time? This show, I'd like to tell you about a pioneering naturalist and bird photographer, Emma Turner. She made a huge contribution to our knowledge of birds, but has been a bit forgotten over time. As a woman in the male-dominated field of ornithology, she was already a trailblazer of sorts, but her work as one of the early bird photographers was truly pioneering too. Have you heard about her, Penny? I'm sorry to say that I have not at all. No, I hadn't heard about her until recently, but funnily enough, her story is very much linked with Norfolk, where we've had some great birding trips over the years, um, as well as to the Bitten, which is, again, a bird that's been a real highlight of some of our East Anglian expeditions. I honestly can't tell you how much I've been yearning for some East Anglian coastal birdwatching action these past few months. Yeah, same. (laughs) So Emma Turner, she was born in the 1860s and started photographing the wildlife of the Norfolk Broads in the 1900s when she was in her 30s. She spent about 20 years observing, getting to know and photographing the birds at Hickling Broad in Norfolk. She had a houseboat built that she lived on um, and she named it the Water Rail after one of the first birds she photographed in the broads. She developed her photographs in a hut on a little island. Hmm. The locals, as you can imagine, found this all pretty eccentric at first, but she earned a lot of respect as an expert photographer and ornithologist. She became an honorary member of the British Ornithologists' Union at a time when very few women were admitted and was one of the first women to be elected a fellow of the Linnaean Society. So a real trailblazer then. Yeah, and when you think about bird photography today and the technology that's available, it's a a completely different ballgame to the type of old-fashioned plate camera Emma Turner would have been using to take her black-and-white nature pictures. She would have had to go through the difficult process of loading the camera with a new plate for each shot she wanted to take. Can you imagine trying to capture wildlife with one of those huge cumbersome Edwardian cameras I honestly can't um as you know I I resist uh, ever carrying a telescope to the (laughs) idea of one of those huge Edwardian cameras yeah and like you know without telephoto lenses and all that sort of technology that bird photographers have available today she had to get up pretty close to the birds and it was hard to not be conspicuous with one of those huge plate cameras she apparently would cover herself in reeds and other natural material and lie hidden for hours with just her camera lens poking out. Wow, she must have been very patient. Yeah, yeah. and despite all the kind of obstacles of using early photographic technology out in the field, the results she got were amazing. Apparently towards the end of her life, she worried that her work would no longer be of interest because it was black and white and colour photography had come along. But the photographs are still great to look at today and they were a valuable contribution to our knowledge of bird behaviour. What kind of birds did she photograph then? Well, she managed to photograph some pretty secretive birds and capture their behaviour. Birds including bearded tits, grasshopper warblers, water rails. Her most famous image was a photograph she took of a young bittern in 1911. This photograph proved that bitterns were breeding again in Norfolk after they had been driven to extinction in Britain in the late 19th century. Mm. So this was an absolutely vital landmark image. She was awarded the gold medal of the Royal Photographic Society for it. Oh, I have to look up that picture. Yeah, and there's a new book called Emma Turner, A Life Looking at Birds that's been released this year. And I saw an article with one of the book's authors, James Parry, made an interesting point about this bittern image. He said that the image was so important, not just because it proved that bitterns were breeding again in the UK, but also because it showed that a camera could now be used to prove a bird's existence rather than a gun. That's so interesting because in the 20th century, we really have had a transition in biology and the study of natural history. Mm. Um, it really did used to be about killing things and taking them home to museums. Um, so yeah. interesting to think about how that transition was made. It's, yeah, a complete kind of shift in how 
how people think about proving they've seen a bird or that a bird exists in a certain area um, and a very welcome one as well. Yeah. Interestingly, the original plates for that famous bitten image and hundreds of other plates and slides of her work have been lost for decades after her death in 1940 until they were found in spring last year in a battered cardboard box at the BTO or the British Trust for Ornithology. This was a huge find, as before this we pretty much just had reproductions of her pictures, such as those in the books that she published in the 1920s. So hopefully this discovery will help drive a renewed appreciation of her work. Oh wow, I hope when the galleries and museums get going again, um, I'd, I'd love to see an exhibition of all of those. Yeah, that would be lovely, especially now you know that they're available in such a better quality than people have seen them for decades. What a great inductee to our Hall of Fame. Now it's time for bird watching essentials, our discussion of the skills, practices and techniques of birding. Penny, this time you want to talk all about notes. Yes, um, this is an interesting one really because it's something that a lot of bird watchers take extremely seriously, mm. but that I've never really settled on any method in particular. Do you have a way of keeping track of what you've seen, Joe? I think I used to have a notebook where I wrote down birds I'd seen on trips, especially ones I'd seen for the first time ever. But these days I don't tend to see a new species for the first time very often, um, so there's less of a motivation to keep those records for me, I think. How about you? Yeah, similarly, I used to keep a field notebook that I filled in during birdwatching trips, so I'd have the date, location, time of day, what I saw in each hide I I went to. Mm. I also did try, when I was younger, to follow various kinds of birdwatching advice, like sketching the birds that I'd seen or describing sightings that I couldn't identify. But Mm. I can't say I had much success with either of those, so that's not really something I do anymore. Mm. I'm I'm much more laissez-faire now, after a good day spotting... I tend to list every species I can remember in my diary at the end of the day and that serves me pretty well. It's always fun totting up the number. I'd usually hope for probably about 30 or 40 at least on a good day out. I don't tend to top them up but I don't feel like I've had as successful a birding trip as that for quite a while. Um, and, and I do find just keeping those little notes in my diary helpful later on for for planning future visits, really. So, for mm. example, last year, Dad and I had a great time watching a barn owl hunt mm. at the Rainer Masters Reserve in mid-November. Mm. So by noting down when that happened, I can know in future if I want a, a better chance at seeing a barn owl, I'll look that up and know that exactly when it was that I visited before and, and the time of day that we saw the sighting. Yeah. But another reason to take field notes is part of the learning process the idea here is that by noting down observations on markings behavior and so on you learn more about the species that you're watching Mm. i can't say though that this has ever appealed to me too much (laughs) i'm not doing any exams in bird watching so i'd rather sort of absorb that more passively if you're busy like you don't want it to put you off going on trips because you've got all this kind of admin to do around it (laughs) yeah there is a bit of a trend now amongst kind of younger slightly more trendy bird watching crowds for um bird journaling so it's a bit like hipster journaling um (laughs) but applying that to to going out into the field and and that Mm. focuses a bit more on kind of mindfulness and and communing with nature and how it makes you feel but another reason to take notes is for data collection so some people love to tally up the number of individuals they see in a day for example rather than just noting that you saw dunlin you want to record that you've seen 43 dunlin (laughs) so that can be just for personal use or sometimes um 
people are helping to contribute to scientific studies. So uh, the BTO's Garden Birdwatch scheme, for example, sees thousands of people collecting weekly data on how many individuals of each species they've seen in their garden each week. Yeah, that's such a nice thing to do, isn't it? To keep track of nature in your garden if you have one. And I think the BTO gets such useful data from it that they use to kind of gauge population sizes of different birds. Mm. I met some bird watchers on the Isle of Mull last year who keep lifelong checklists of all the species they've ever seen. Mm. I can see the appeal of this. You never forget that you've seen a species but I'm personally put off by the numbers game. Mm. Sometimes when I see a species for the first time, I don't get a very long or good view. And to me, it just doesn't really feel like that counts. Mm. I'm much more in birdwatching for the enjoyable sightings rather than building up a long list of spots. Mm. I'm guessing you feel much the same way. Like, would you ever worry about trying to remember if you've seen a tree pipit or not? (laughs) I don't think so. I think generally I can kind of remember if I've seen a bird or not. Mm. I think the numbers thing is great if it's what motivates you to get out bird watching but I think it can kind of imply that there's no joy to be had from seeing the same birds again and again which which is a shame because um you know especially as we've found recently being limited with travel and stuff you know you can actually get a lot from getting a kind of a new view of a bird or or getting a particularly good view of a bird yeah I agree And then on top of all of this, there are more technological ways to record your sightings these days, including apps, for example. And I have to say a personal bugbear, photography. Oh, no. Think of Emma Turner. What would she say? (laughs) Photography down. So I don't have any problem with bird photography in general. In fact, I love a good picture of a a good bird. But I I have had some bad experiences in hides with just crowds of people all obsessing over snapping pictures of every possible bird as a sort of way to record that they'd seen it there that day and the noise of the shutters can be really loud Mm. but to my mind anyway in some respects this does feel a little bit like hunting it's collecting for the sake of a keepsake to take home yeah no I I see your point but I mean at least they're not actually killing birds to prove they've seen them like (laughs) ornithologists used to I think I think you know you know I think really we should be grateful to cameras for stopping that surely and um and also, when stuck at home, I found it's lovely to see bird pictures from other people's outings sort of bobbing up on Twitter. So I suppose maybe it's about quality of photos rather than using them merely as a way of kind of recording you've seen something. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Finally, it's time for Bird Spurious, a dose of trivia with a tenuous link to birding. What have you got to share this time, Joe? Well, this is an exciting one because it was brought to our attention by our listeners, Joseph and Shannon, who have been listening to our podcast over in Minnesota in the US. Oh, great. Now, I had no idea about this until they got in touch, but do you know about the BBC's first ever live outdoor broadcast? No, nothing. No, I didn't either, but it was on the 19th of May 1924, and it was a live radio broadcast from the Surrey Garden of a distinguished cellist called Beatrice Harrison. Listeners across the country heard what was effectively a sort of duet between Harrison, who was playing her cello, and a nightingale singing from the woods around her home. Was that intentional? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's a great story. Beatrice had noticed one summer evening while practising in her garden that a nightingale started answering back to her cello. Wow. She She tried again on other nights and kept hearing nightingale song in response to her cello, so she persuaded the BBC to come round and try and record this happening. It was really technologically ambitious at the time to broadcast from outdoors, and apparently it was pretty tense during the live broadcast because at first she was playing the cello, but there was no birdsong to be heard. 
eventually, thankfully, a nightingale piped up and the result was beautiful. Um, I've had a listen online. It's just it's just wonderful. Oh, wow. I'm going to have to find that. Yeah, we'll tweet links to the recording online so everyone can hear for themselves. There was a huge reaction from the public to the broadcast at the time, and it became an event that was repeated every spring for the next 12 years. What? <laughs> yeah. Harrison herself became internationally renowned as the Lady of the Nightingales and received thousands of fan letters. So a pretty big phenomenon then, really. Yeah, yeah, kind of surprising to have not heard about it, really, um, when you realise what a big part of people's lives it was for a period of time. Thanks very much for the tip of Joseph and Shannon. It's such a great story and really lovely listening to those recordings as well. It's great to think that people were finding ways of bringing nature into people's homes through broadcasting almost a hundred years ago. Yeah, how lovely. That's it for this episode of Bird Curious. The show is written and produced by us, Penny and Joe Sarchet, and is edited by Joe too. Our music is by Chris Warrington, our sound production by James Telford, and our artwork by Elizabeth Querstrep. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BirdCuriousPod, Please do tell us about any great birds you've seen recently and you can tweet us to suggest bird trivia for our Bird Spurious segment. Please do recommend the show to any friends or family you think might also be bird curious. You can subscribe to the podcast in all the usual places. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>